Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your industry malcontent and ATM of a reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. And uh, tonight, since I'm tacitly planning on going to bed after this, I, uh, I'm only having a blonde uh, a blonde roast. So, uh, you know, I thought they'd keep things a little lighter so I could take a little siesta here in a few. Mm. Inaugural sip, that's good. Show has officially begun. All right. So we got a little housekeeping to, uh, to knock out before we get into the main part of the program. A couple of uh, new reviews on Apple. Terry Walker C. had some very kind things to say about the show. Terry uh, said he came over uh, from a recommendation from Par- uh, from, Par- from Mark and Page uh, on their show. Uh, so thank you, Business Daddy Mark LaCour and Page for the recommendation and sending me a, a new listener. But most importantly, thank you, Terry. Glad you're enjoying the show and happy to have you here. Also, uh, RGJQ stated uh, in their review they were one of my 13 loyal fans. Thank you so much for, um, for being one of, the, uh, one of the loyal 13. We love that. Thank you. And also, not to be discounted, I received a LinkedIn message from uh, Lewis, and it says, I'm going to read this very briefly. Uh, hey, Jordan, I'm listener number 11. Uh, and I have a podcast request for you. Can you do an episode on the uh, Karish and Kwana gas fields? Um, basically, you know, the whole uh, Israel-Lebanon joint gas field situation there in the Mediterranean, I think that is. Um, and then he goes on to say some very nice things that are very kind, and I'm too embarrassed to read. But uh, to answer your question, uh, my friend, Mr. Levine, yes, yes, I will do an episode on that. Uh, give me a few weeks to do some... Um, do some research. I don't know a lot about that talk, but off the top of my head, but it definitely sounds like something this show should cover, and cover it we shall. So that is in my stack of uh, of shows that will be coming here in the next several weeks, I suspect. So, yeah, thank you so much. Also, um, uh, while I'm thinking about this, I just want to say, for the record, that I love the fact, because this is several of you guys, when you write in, you'll say something like, I'm one of the loyal 13, or I'm listener number 13, or I'm listener number 11, listener number 5, or whatever. Uh, I love the fact that my audience just leans into that. Uh, that is my favorite thing ever. That just makes me so happy. Uh, my little Grinch heart grows like five times whenever that happens. It's, that's delightful. I love that. Um, I have the best audience in the network, I, I think. Y'all are just great. Okay. Uh, let's see here. What else we got on the old docket? 
Uh, so speaking of business daddy Mark LaCour, the big boss over here at OGGN and one of the few human beings on this planet who actually exercises any level of functional control over me, has informed me that I really wicked need to do an episode on the BP Deepwater Horizon as one of my infamous scandals episodes. Uh, he evidently has a lot of knowledge about the subject. He thinks it would pique my interest if I did a little digging on it. So, um, yeah, over the next several weeks, I'm adding that one a little higher up the old uh, docket. Going to do some research. I'm going to be picking his brain a bit and uh, seeing what the scoop is and doing a show on that, I think. I mean, I've tried to put it off, but I'm, I'm told by people in the know that there's uh, that it's more interesting than I think it is. So, yeah, I'll probably be doing that. Uh, also... Uh, my my good uh, my good friend here, one of the loyal thirteen, Lodvig, has asked me about my thoughts on the Dutch Libertarian Party. Um, boy, Lodvig, uh, I uh, I will say this uh, as as honestly as I can. I don't know the first goddamn thing about Dutch politics. To be completely honest, uh, British politics. I can talk about American politics. I got in the bag. Um, I keep sort of an eye on the stuff in Canada a little bit. Um, Australian politics, Chinese, Russian, um, probably even more Turkish than I have any business to. But Dutch politics, I actually don't know much about. Um, That being said, I will do some research. I will look into that, and I will uh, see what I I can come up with. Uh, What I will tell you is... Uh, knowing that you are from over there, you are going to be more educated about this topic than I am, uh, no matter how much research I do. But yes, I will I will do a little bit of looking into that, and I'll, I'll uh, render my verdict. I was not even aware there was such a thing as a Dutch Libertarian Party. Um, sounds like my kind of jam, although the fact that uh, evidently it seems America's exported its... Uh, uh, bifurcated and troublesome politics uh, to uh, the Netherlands is always worrying, but you know, sorry about that. But here we are. So yeah, I'll, I'll do some looking at that. I'll give you some thoughts on it in a later episode. I um, I, yeah, I just I've never paid a lot of attention to Dutch politics. To be honest, I I don't know a lot about it. So, but yes, yes, I can look at that. No big deal. Okay, last thing I want to bring up. And that is an idea that I was having for the uh, end-of-year special. So, uh, here at the network, they try and do like some sort of a, an episode, sort of like an end-of-year episode where everybody gets on or whatever. Uh, I was only just kind of getting spooled up when it happened, so I didn't really involve myself in it because I didn't think I had any business being there, uh, seeing as how my show wasn't launching for another month. But this year, obviously, presumably this show will be here at the end of the year and much longer beyond. And so I thought, you know, I ought to do, you know, I have my um, my tax day, American tax day, April 15th special episode I'm going to do every year, which is my Woodrow Wilson hate episode. And I've got kind of my infamous scandal series that I've drifted in and out of from time to time. And I thought I should have a, a an end of year special of some sort. So here's what I'm thinking. And you guys tell me if this sounds interesting to you. If you've ever been in the UK for the holidays, uh, Christmas time, New Year's, that kind of thing, Boxing Day, uh... And if you're an American and you don't know what Boxing Day is, just Google it. Um, But anyway, there is a show that comes on called uh, The Big Fat Quiz. And it's basically uh, Jimmy Carr hosted. And uh, if you don't know who Jimmy Carr is, very briefly, he's a British comedian with the laugh of a braying donkey and a penchant for not paying his taxes. 
Um, he hosts it very funny. Uh, and usually it's a panel of British comedians, and I enjoy British humor quite a bit, but uh, that's beside the point. At any rate, it's hilarious because it's a quiz about just everything that happened, politics, music, whatever, for the, the, you know, the preceding year. And what I thought would be a fun idea is to do sort of a version of that where I host several of the other hosts of different shows on the network. At the end of the year, we all get together in person. We all have some adult beverages. And we do our own little geopolitics quiz where I just sort of throw out questions and see who can get closest to the answer on um, geopolitical issues that happen during the year. And it'd make it funny and, you know, it'd be, be you know, just trying to have a laugh and a good time and a few drinks. And we record it and that might be fun. So if that sounds funny to you guys, if that sounds enjoyable, uh, let me know. I'm uh, kind of leaning towards doing that. I've already had some initial conversations with a few folks to gauge interest. People seem to like it. So, yeah, I, I like the idea of it. Tell me what you think. Okay, enough of the housekeeping. Let's get into our topic for tonight. So, I uh, get uh, not a tremendous amount, but I do get um, feedback from my audience and um, uh, folks that write in and, and request things and all that. And um, usually it goes into kind of one of three stacks, right? So, I've got like the stack of things um, that I just reply to and I say, hey, yeah, here's what I think about this or whatever. Um, and, you know, I have a bit of dialogue with uh, with whoever's reaching out to me, and I really enjoy that. I enjoy getting to talk to, to listeners of the show and, and all of that. Uh, the other sort of stack is the things that I put into the, oh, this would be a good for a Q&A episode down the road. Um, and so I'll save those aside, and I'll just do a Q&A episode every, you know, six to eight weeks or whatever. Um and then lastly, there's the questions I get that I say, you know what, you're actually going in the third stack, and that is, I'm just going to do a show about this at some point. That's what we have here. So the question tonight is uh, from a listener who asked, why is Iran and Russia, why are Iran and Russia so tight? And um, why are they so hell-bent on helping Russia, both in their war in the Ukraine uh, and just in general? Great question. Let's talk about that tonight. God knows I haven't hit Iran as much as I probably should have, but here we go. We'll start with it. So, to answer your question, a couple of things you have to understand. One, as of this year, 2023, Russia is the most heavily sanctioned country on planet Earth. Think about that. Let that soak in for a minute. Russia is the most heavily sanctioned country on Earth. The second most heavily sanctioned country on Earth is Iran. Yep. Both Russia and Iran are even more heavily sanctioned than North Korea. Yeah. Wild, isn't it? Okay. So, since the invasion of Ukraine, Iranian imports from Russia have increased more than 27%. In 2018, Russia even agreed to invest $50 billion dollars to help support Iran's natural gas industry and revitalize the Aban and West Padar oil fields. And they even have launched Iranian satellites in this past year and put them into orbit. Now, that all sounds like they're pretty tight. At the national level, they are quite ideologically opposed. But the one thing they have in common is that they see the U.S. as their common enemy. And by happenstance, Russia and Iran have spent the past decade tacitly being on the same side of the Syrian civil war, trying to prop up the government of Bashir al-Assad. Uh, al now, 
Given the number of near misses Iran's had with the U.S. and the Persian Gulf, Iran sees a conflict with the U.S. as pretty likely at some point. They also see the battlefield in Ukraine as a great place to test their weapons against U.S. capabilities without actually having to put their people or their country at risk. And no, make no mistake, the U.S. and the West is absolutely collecting massive amounts of data on how their forces and equipment is faring against Russia, which is the closest thing the U.S. and the West has dealt with in terms of a pure state conflict in decades. So both sides see this battleground as something they can collect a lot of data on their military equipment performance. Okay. Also, Iran and Russia complement each other uh, from a military standpoint. Iran is able to produce drones, rockets, and ammunition, and armor that Russia needs, especially considering their staggering losses in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia is selling Iran some of their advanced fighter jets and their air defense systems like the S-300 and the S-400, which is something Iran is sorely lagging behind in capabilities. And they need that to protect their nuclear research facilities because Israel has on more than one occasion stated that they will attack Iran first and do a first strike if they think there is a chance Iran is about to produce a viable nuclear weapon. And judging from Israel's track record in the hood, I believe them when they say that. Okay, so there are a lot of the high-level reasons why this is the case, but much like Russia and China, Russia and Iran have not always been on the same side of things historically. And of course, if you're tuning into this show, you know you're going to get a fucking history lesson. Okay, now I could hear some of the arguments right now. Uh, The U.S. and Britain didn't exactly have... uh, The warmest relationship starting out, what with the Revolutionary War and all, uh, but we seem to get along pretty good these days. Uh, Your argument about Russia and China eventually getting a divorce or Russia and Iran having a bad past that's going to be an issue, aren't those kind of the same thing? I would argue they're not. Um, First off, there is one very critical reason why the U.S. and Britain get along so toasty these days, and it's not just because the Revolutionary War was a long time ago. It's also because... Britain and the U.S. have a similar cultural background. I mean, the U.S., whether we like to admit or not, was once a British colony. We're the one that got away. But we have similar religious backgrounds, similar political backgrounds, similar historical underpinnings and antecedents, uh, similar language, culture, all of those things. And Yes, the the British have, you know, lift and boot and and bonnet and all these kinds of other words that don't quite mean the same thing. But by and large, if you're in a room with someone from Great Britain, you can understand what they're saying if you're American, unless they happen to be uh, (laughs) Welsh. Um, I'm I'm kidding. Love my my Welsh listeners. Um, Anyway, the point is, we have a cultural tie that Russia and China do not or that Russia and Iran do not. Keep in mind, over the past several hundred years, Russia has fought multiple wars with the prequel state to Iran, the Persian Empire, over control and influence in Central Asia, specifically the Caucasus and the Caspian Sea. Back in 1804, uh, let's see here, Russia... Back in 1804, uh, Russia conquered several Iranian territories in the Caucasus, and by 1828, they would take control of what is modern-day Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. Previously, these were Persian lands and had been for centuries, and even after the fall of the Soviet Union, these nations had closer ties to Russia politically than Iran, despite the fact that, from a religious standpoint and a cultural standpoint, a 
<clears throat> genealogy standpoint, they had a lot more in common with Iranians. But Russia never gave them up. Uh, Russia never uh, pushed them to return back to the motherland and uh, still kept a pretty short political leash on them. Okay, so by the late 1800s, another thing to keep in mind is one of the British Empire's major strategic goals was to block Russian expansion into Asia from getting further south. And they wanted to do this for several reasons, primarily to keep them away from British India, which at the time was a massively important colony to the British Empire, and also to keep them away from having sea access to the Indian Ocean or the Persian Gulf, which would de facto complicate things for Britain. <coughs> so... In 1907, Britain and Russia came up with an agreement. They were going to carve up the Persian Empire into spheres of influence. Russia would be given a sphere of influence control over the northern part of Iran. Britain would be given a sphere of influence control over the southern part. And the middle bit of Iran, uh, around uh, the capital of Tehran, would be declared a neutral zone that the Iranians could just sort of do whatever they wanted in. Naturally, the Iranians were not consulted or included in this bargain, and were needless to say, not thrilled about it. Now, during World War II, we had the Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran, which happened from 1941 to 1946, when the Soviets and the Brits jointly decided to invade the Persian Empire. Ostensibly, this was to keep supply lines safe for equipment and supplies moving in and out of the Middle East and to prevent the Nazis. How do you keep the Nazis from invading something? Invade it first, obviously, right? That's what you do. Okay, so that's what happened, 41 to 46. Now, the Shah, who was the ruler at the time, was toppled, and a more friendly Shah was installed to ensure that the Allies' supply lines wouldn't have any kind of issues during the war. Now, in 1946, the Soviets pulled out, and a new Shah took the reins of power, and from the 1950s and 60s and 70s, the Iranian Empire was shifting strongly to being a pro-U.S. power, and they were aggressively anti-communist and anti-Soviet Union. Now, why? Probably had something to do with the Russians invading the joint, but I don't know. That's just my guess. At any rate, it was so pro-U.S. that they had fully stocked their military with U.S. weapons, training, gear, aircraft, you name it. Naturally, this made Iranian relations with Russia, a.k.a. the Soviet Union, a bit frosty. Now, all of this changes in 1979 when the Islamic Revolution happens in Iran. The liberal pro-U.S. Shah is ousted and run out of town like a poisonous lizard, while the hardcore conservative Islamic theocracy that we have today was set up under the Ayatollah, and it was heavily anti-U.S. The Ayatollah was very open about his stated goals, which were to export the hard-right Iranian revolution across every single Muslim country in the world and unify all of Islam under the Ayatollah's vision of the faith. And naturally, this did not make Iran a lot of friends. Uh, almost instantly, Iraq, under the leader of Saddam, bitchin' mustache Hussein, and Saudi Arabia were vehemently against Iran. After all, a Muslim superstate might have sounded punchy and fun, but not when it didn't allow for monarchies or political parties to continue to rule. The other stated goal Iran had was of uh, destroying the state of Israel, and, or as the Ayatollah put it, driving the Jews into the seas. And I'm Palestinian, and even that statement gives me the ick. 
right? So not super great. So fast forward to a little later on in 1979, and the U.S. embassy is overrun. Um, People die, and the U.S. decides to officially sever relations with Iran and cut off any and all supplies to them. And keep in mind, their military was uh, pretty much entirely based on U.S. tech. Now, the degradation and the ability to support uh, their military and all these other factors, which we've covered in previous episodes, uh, caused in 1980 a Saddam mustache Hussein to launch an attack of Iran in 1980. Now, fun fact, the Iraqi invasion was heavily financed by several outside parties, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, that's right, the same country Saddam would later go on to invade, and the United Arab Emirates. Now, why were all these countries in particular interested in bankrolling Saddam's invasion of Iran? Well, they were all Islamic monarchies who did not want to see the spread of a hard-right Islamic theocracy that would see the end of their reign. But back to Russia. So, you'd think this would have given Russia a solid opening with Iran, but rather it was worrying. You see, the Russians had helped prop up and install a relatively new and, at this point, incredibly unstable communist regime in Afghanistan, which was coming apart at the seams due to a lot of hard-right Iranian Islamic revolutionary sentiments, which had the Soviets starting to sweat bullets. So, in order to prop up this communist government, they decided to invade Afghanistan in 1980 and try and prevent the spread of an Iranian revolution into their little communist state. Now, keep in mind, the Soviet Union was staunchly an atheist state, and so the idea of a religious revolution, especially one that was opposed to communism, was not exactly their idea of a good time. Furthermore, much of the Soviet Central Asian territories were predominantly Muslim peoples, whether or not the Soviets wanted that to be the case or not. We're talking Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Georgia, the Tartar populations in the Crimea, because it always comes back to the fucking Crimea. At any rate, the last thing the Soviet Union wanted or needed was seeing the spread of Iranian revolution through their territories in oil-rich lands. So they decided to invade Afghanistan to put a stop to it for the opposite and yet the same reasons the U.S. invaded Vietnam. We invaded Vietnam in order to put a stop to the spread of communism. Uh, The Soviets invaded Afghanistan to ensure the spread of communism and stop the spread of Islamic revolution. At any rate, uh, this caused a chain reaction of events. The Iranian government uh, sent cash and equipment into Afghanistan to support the Mujahideen fighters, who were ironically also being supported by the U.S. in this sort of a enemy of my enemy is a friend kind of situation. And there's even instances where Soviet Spetsnaz, that's their special forces, launch attacks into Iran proper to destroy uh, Mujahideen bases and supplies, forcing them to come into direct conflict with Iranian military forces. Now, in 1988, a Soviet jet even shot down a pair of Iranian helicopters. Now, with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, this allowed the Russian Federation to emerge, which was no longer a communist state, and was no longer an avowedly atheist state, which allowed relations to begin to normalize between Iran and Russia. Still not what you'd call chummy, but they weren't trying to stab each other in the UN. So that's a plus, right? Okay. Now, by 2000, 
Iran was the third largest customer of buying Russian weapons. Now, things really didn't begin to warm up with Russia and Iran until the Syrian civil war. For Russia, they had inherited very close relations with Syria during the Cold War from the Soviets because the Soviets had been major suppliers of the Syrian Ba'ath Party, which was a quasi-socialist Muslim political party um, that the Soviets thought would be the seeds of a future communist revolution in the region. At any rate, as part of this weapons supply scheme, the Syrians gave Russians a long-term lease on a naval base at Tartus, which is the only Soviet, or at this point, Russian port anywhere on the Mediterranean. Now, I, um, I've already covered in previous episodes all the reasons why uh, the Russians consider uh, naval bases highly important, or why anybody would really. But for the Russians, this is very important for several reasons. One, they don't have a lot of warm water ports that are ice-free year-round. Two, this is literally the only port the Russians have for their navy in the Mediterranean Sea. Keep in mind, this is back before they uh, took over the Crimea Crimea, just north of the Black Sea. So this was a big, hairy deal to keep this port. At any rate, uh, the the issue here was that when the Syrian civil war kicked off, if a different government took over, especially the one that was more pro-West, they might well decide to eject the Russians from the base because it was on a good piece of real estate and thus block off Russia from having access to the Mediterranean. Um, This was a problem. So the Russians decided to back Assad because Assad offered them a sweetheart deal on the base if the Russians kept him propped up into power. So the Russians conducted over 70,000 airstrikes, deployed over 10,000 troops, and helped prop up the uh, Assad regime. Now, as the civil war began to wind down, the Syrian government uh, gave off or signed off on the sweetheart deal to Russia uh, for the base at Tardis. They got to lease the base free of charge for 49 years or until the year 2066, and it's also considered separate legal Russian sovereign territory. No charge. That's one hell of a sweet sweetheart gig. Now... How does this affect the situation with Iran? Well, you see, Iran also needed the Assad regime to remain in power as much as the Russians did, but for very different reasons. For Iran, they needed Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon to remain uh, geopolitically opposed to the U.S. and to the West-leaning Gulf states like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, etc., and Israel. So Iraq had historically had beef with Iran, fearing the expansion of the Islamic Revolution. And the issue with Syria, and uh, had issue with Syria because while it was controlled by the Ba'ath Party, uh, which was the same party Saddam was a member of, Syria refused to work with or subordinate themselves to Iraq, which Saddam felt was bullshit because he and Iraq were the senior country in the region. So, when Saddam was ousted in 2003, it caused a major power vacuum in Iraq, um, a situation which has never been successfully filled. Now, here's the thing. Whenever the U.S. goes bungling along in a Middle Eastern conflict, there is always a chain reaction of ripple effects that are way more complicated than any of our Dr. Strange looking into the future analysis is ever able to predict the outcomes. Um, Case in point, this one here. For as much of a scumbag as Saddam Hussein was, and his bitchin' mustache, 
he was a bit of a stabilizing force in the Middle East. A lot of countries took their lead from him. He kept a firm hand on a lot of the regional conflicts. He was a good check to Iran. He was a check to Syria. And without him there, keeping Syria and Iran geographically separated through a very uh, walled-off border, so to speak, uh, that kept those two from achieving any real headway together. Well, when Iraq collapsed and the U.S. took over and all these things happened, it gave Iran two things that they really wanted. First off, it weakened one of their two biggest enemies in the Middle East, Iraq. Secondly, the instability that continues to this day in Iraq has allowed Iran to use supply lines on the ground through Iraq into Syria, allowing them to fully arm, equip, train, and support uh, Bashar, uh, Bashar and uh, also the Hezbollah militants in Lebanon and elsewhere. It's something that they were not previously able to do because Saddam would have never allowed Iranian militants to be crossing his country with impunity, but now the government of Iraq has virtually no way to stop it. Okay, so... There we are. So this is why Iran has spent so much time supplying militias in Iraq and trying to keep it destabilized. In 2020, when Lebanon fell to Hezbollah, this represented the first time an external country that Iran has been working with has managed to successfully export its revolution to. So given that Iran is wanting to uh, protect their revolution and Russia is needing to keep the port at Tartus, Russia and Iran found themselves fighting side by side on the same side by pure happenstance and pretty much for the first time in history. So starting in 2022 and 2023, as sanctions rained down on Russia, Iran found themselves presented with an opportunity. They could sell Russian uh, they could sell to Russia weapons and bolster uh, the Russians' dwindling supplies. In exchange, they got a few things out of it. So there's that. The other thing to keep in mind is that Russia is kind of in need of Iran for some other economic reasons that aren't immediately apparent. One of those is a scheme called the International North-South Transport Corridor between Russia and India. So, Understand that India is one of the largest buyers of Russian weapons, and now they are becoming one of the largest purchasers of cheap Russian oil and gas. And the reasons behind this are complicated, and we're already 30 minutes in, so I can't really go into all of that. But suffice it to say, at a very short level, India has gone out of its way to be very neutral towards Russia. Uh, India is more than happy to work with the U.S. when it comes to China because they see China as a literal threat next door. They do not see Russia the same way. So they have avoided condemning Russia, sanctioning Russia, um, or any of that. And they do buy quite a lot of their military hardware from Russia. So India wants to keep that relationship going. And Russia desperately needs it right now because their economy is more frail than it's ever been. So here's the deal. Exports from Russia have to sail from St. Petersburg on the NATO-dominated Baltic through the English Channel, surrounded by NATO, through the English, <coughs> excuse me, through the NATO-dominated Straits of Gibraltar into the Mediterranean, then across the entire length of the NATO-controlled Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, through the Red Sea, Red Sea, through the western fortified Mandab Straits, 
and then finally across the Arabian Sea and to India. This is a lot of Western-controlled choke points for vital Russian shipping. The uh, International North-South Transport Corridor is a land route through Russia into and across Iran and to the coast of the Arabian Sea, and from there just a short boat ride skip over to India which supposedly will cut some 30 to 40 percent off the cost of goods moving between Russia and India. But it hinges on Iran being willing to play ball. After all, they have to allow this highway, this transport corridor, to go through pretty much the length of their territory from Russia. So that's kind of a big deal. So Russia, buying tons of Iranian weapons and using uh, those in Ukraine, also gives Iran four things that they really want. First, they get to field test how well their equipment works against American equipment without actually having to be in a war with America or the West directly. Secondly, the Russians have agreed to sell more advanced equipment like the S-400 and the Su-35 fighter, which is important to Iran because Israel has, again, threatened to do an airstrike anytime they think there's going to be a nuclear weapon developed. Which brings us to our third reason. Uh... With this close partnership, Iran may be hoping that Russia will go one step further and help them develop a nuclear weapon. Now, the problem with this theory is that if Russia did it, it would effectively torpedo Russia's relations with literally every other Middle Eastern nation who it doesn't currently have a beef with. And it would also wildly tilt the balance of power in the Middle East. Uh, Because, again, if Iran gets the nuke, then Saudi Arabia is going to want the nuke. And there's a good chance that Israel will use the nuke if they think this is going to happen. So that's a problem. But if Russia gets desperate, this might just be the kind of play that would cause a massive distraction that forced the U.S. to pivot from dealing with the situation in Ukraine to dealing with this new and bizarre situation in the Middle East. And after all, if you're Iran... You already have watched how the U.S. will topple Iraq when they give up their nukes. They'll topple Libya when they give up their nukes. But at the same time, they will tap dance around nations like Russia and China and North Korea because they have nuclear weapons. And lastly, it lets Iran have something that they probably cherish in their hearts more than anything, and that is to be seen in the global community as undermining America and Western authority. So... There is your long historically latent answer as to why Iran seems to be so in bed with Russia right now. Is this going to be a long-term arrangement? Who the hell knows? But that's how we're there now. That's what the story is. That's the antecedents. So that is all we got time for tonight. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that one. Let me know what you think. And uh, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you the revolution will not be televised. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. We'll be right back.